You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting for WFHB. This is Deke Hager. And I'm Lucy Kellison. This is the WFHB local news for Monday, October 31st, 2022. But the arrest of Richard M. Allen of Delphi on two counts of murder is sure a major step in leading to the conclusion of this long-term and complex investigation. Later in the program, police have arrested a man in connection with two murders in Delphi, Indiana. More updates on the Delphi murders in today's headlines. I vote to acknowledge and honor the sacrifices made by my ancestors. Also coming up in the next half hour, Dr. Charlie Nelms reads from his essay, Five Reasons Why I Vote and You Should Too, ahead of Election Day, which happens next Tuesday, November 8th. But first, your daily headlines. At the Bloomington City Council Committee of the Whole meeting on October 26th, the council deliberated about a stop sign change on Maxwell Street and Sheridan. The present-day situation has a stop sign for those entering Maxwell from Sheridan. However, the proposed change would make it a four-way stop. Councilmember Dave Rollo presented the ordinance. He explained why he thinks the intersection change is necessary. It's a very hazardous intersection. Um, it currently is a two-way stop. That is uh, north and southbound Sheridan stop at Maxwell, but Maxwell does not stop. And there is, because of uh, topography, there is a, a blind hill to the west of the intersection, which presents a real problem, presents a hazard to pedestrians and bicycles and, 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 in, and cars. And so it, uh, what we're proposing here is to install an always stop um, to increase the order and predictability of that intersection. Bloomington resident Stephanie Hatton shared her experience driving on Maxwell. Hello, I'm Stephanie Hatton. I live at 1414 East Maxwell Lane, um, just to the west of this intersection. I am from Bloomington. I went to high school here. Um, I went to college here. And for four years, I drove my mom to work at the School of Education. And I went um, through this intersection from the south side of Bloomington uh, to campus. And so for four years, um, and, and since then, because I've been in and out of Bloomington, I have experienced the, the dangers at, at this intersection. It wasn't until I moved in with my four-and-a-half-year-old son and my husband and my dog just before Christmas that I realized the extent of the problem, and my outreach began. Hatton explained why this intersection in particular needs a four-way stop and offered suggestions on how to inform drivers that the stop sign is there if they can't see it approaching due to the hill. I, along with um, Councilmember Rollo and uh, Elm Heights Neighborhood Association President Eric Ost, have had several meetings um, with the administration and uh, engineering specifically asked prior to the July meeting what makes this intersection different from others and, and what makes it worthy of, of extra consideration for an always stop. So that's what I want to take you through now. So this is the total area of the Maxwell Lane and Woodlawn Avenue intersection, which is just a few blocks to the west. 
So the area of this intersection is 1,143 square feet. Moving to Maxwell and Sheridan, it is twice the area at 2,297 square feet. The crossing distance from the west to the east at Maxwell and Woodlawn is 34 feet. And the crossing distance at Maxwell and Sheridan is 58 feet. And the crossing distance from north to south at Woodlawn, 32 feet. And at Maxwell and Sheridan, 45. The other great difference is the, um, or the physical characteristics of this intersection. So at Maxwell and Sheridan at the left, um, I think you can clearly see as compared to Maxwell and Woodlawn on the right, um, the, the fact that the two roads do not bisect and the turn radii are so great um, that we often refer to Maxwell and Sheridan as an off-ramp because uh, traffic traveling from the east to the west that turns north onto Sheridan do not feel the need to signal. Um, they simply proceed and, um, and obviously that presents a, a danger to anyone using that intersection, pedestrian or otherwise. Councilmember Isabel Piedmont-Smith asked Hatton whether stop signs actually slow down traffic. Hatton responded, what do you say to uh, the professional studies that have concluded that stop signs do not slow traffic? So I, I have I have yet to actually see the re the report that that indicates that. So no, I, I can I, I just googled it. it and I got two hits okay. right away. So I want to see that from the engineering department. I want to see what they're using, and I'm not. Again, as I mentioned in the presentation, I. This isn't all about stopping or slowing or calming traffic. If we wanted to calm traffic, then we would implement traffic calming devices. To institute an all-way stop is to require cars to stop. And when they do that, if I'm a driver and you're a pedestrian and I stop and you're there waiting to cross, we have a moment and we have an acknowledgement about right-of-way. And so this goes beyond slowing traffic. Um, personally, I, I, don't, I don't understand um, how if a car stops at a stop sign, that isn't an indication that it has slowed, because technically if you stop, you aren't moving. I understand there are some concerns about cars rolling stops. However, um, personally and my neighbors, I think, would agree that in a situation where there might have been a misunderstanding about right-of-way and a car simply rolled and I was in the way of that car, I would prefer that situation to what we have now. Um, and I have certainly not seen behavior uh, in Bloomington, um, and I think we can all agree we have multitude of, of stop signs and always stops um, throughout the city. I certainly have not seen the behavior of cars all of a sudden speeding up and rushing to the next one. Perhaps there are outliers that can happen, but I don't think it's the common practice. And I, I don't feel that um, that's enough to, you know, again, warrant not having this intervention here. 
During public comment, resident Greg Alexander said he appreciated Hatton's presentation. However, he disagreed with the proposed remedy. He said every neighborhood in Bloomington experiences this problem, and he asked the council why the neighborhood in question would receive preferential treatment. I'm so impressed by Ms. Hatton's presentation. Those intersection diagrams are pure gold. Um, unfortunately, the proposed remedy doesn't fix those geometric problems. Um, the neighbors here tell you that this intersection is a unique problem. To be honest, I live at 15th and Madison, and that mischaracterization is offensive to me. My God, I would love it if the traffic safety problem in my front yard was as small as theirs. Every neighborhood has this exact same problem. The geometry is not unique. We all have blind hills. Every neighborhood has a dangerous street that kids have to cross to get to the park. Every neighborhood has cut through traffic. The only thing special about the problem here is the people involved. It's a very privileged and extremely politically well-connected group. They first crossed my radar when these neighborhoods went to the Bike and Ped Safety Commission and begged them to reject a traffic calming project a little west of there. They couldn't be more explicit. They're not in favor of traffic calming. They only care about their own neighborhood. It's not enough they want to bypass the traffic calming program that the, and cut to the front of the line. They are willing to actually sabotage the other neighbors directly. So the first question they're asking you to decide is whether this neighborhood is so special that it should have its own individual traffic calming program bypassing the program that every other neighborhood has to use. This is so damaging to the rest of us. Every neighborhood has this problem. My neighborhood, though, my neighbors are the kind of people who live in the cheapest apartment within city limits. We outnumber this privileged neighborhood, and we use our cars a lot less, but we will never receive this kind of special treatment from this body. The second question is whether the neighborhood should be able to override engineering and micromanage the traffic calming to choose stop signs. You know, there are a lot of things I would improve about the city's existing traffic calming program. If you want to open that up for all the neighborhoods, it's a conversation worth having. But just briefly, I know only one four-way stop that works well, 11th and Rogers. Usually people stop completely before the crosswalk, and that's great. I can't name a single other stop sign that really works. For example, just two blocks west there at 11th and Fairview, no one stops. You would think they slow down and then they stop if they see pedestrians in the street, for example. No, they don't stop. They play chicken with my kids in the street. That's a problem in my neighborhood. That's the lived experience of people living in my neighborhood. And people in this privileged neighborhood should know stop signs don't work because the stop signs just east of there on High Street are so famously ineffective. Everybody knows they don't work. People that live in my neighborhood know about those stop signs that don't work. Stop signs can be a powerful tool, but calming traffic requires both more nuance and more boldness. This proposal will not even solve the problem for this one privileged group of neighbors. We have a severe traffic safety problem in this city. People are dying in the streets. We desperately need to empower our engineers to implement interventions that they know will work. The problems the neighbors point out are real. They're worth solving. This council has a duty to pass broad plans that benefit all citizens. What about the lived experiences of the much larger number of people who live on far busier streets than this one? Do we matter? Thanks. The council voted five to one to zero with a due pass recommendation. The Bloomington City Council will take a final vote on the intersection change at their next meeting on November 2nd. An Indiana man was charged in the murders of two teenage girls in Delphi, Indiana. 14-year-old Liberty German and her 13-year-old friend Abigail Williams were found near the abandoned Monon Trail Bridge five years ago. 
On Monday, officials with the Indiana State Police in Carroll County announced the arrest of Richard Allen, who faces two accounts of murder. Superintendent of the Indiana Police, Doug Carter, made the announcement at the press conference earlier today. Seldom do I have prepared remarks, but today is different because I do not want there there to be any confusion or ambiguity with what I will say. Today is not a day to celebrate, but the arrest of Richard M. Allen of Delphi on two counts of murder is sure a major step in leading to the conclusion of this long-term and complex investigation. First, I'd like to speak directly to Anna, Mike, Becky, Kelsey, your extended families, along with the entire Delphi community that certainly has grown and now includes our nation and even many countries around the world. I am proud to report to you that today, actually last Friday, was the day. And an arrest has been made. Thanks to literally hundreds of media outlets that have been steadfast in reporting and keeping the memories of Abby and Libby front and center. Many of you in the room have developed relationships with me personally, and you know I always have a personal perspective, and today's no different. But from a very personal perspective, you have provided, you all have provided inspiration and support even while oftentimes frustrated with us and me. You continue, but you continue to encourage the efforts and you too believe that one day we would all be here participating and sharing this news. To the entire law enforcement community, which includes all local, state, and federal agencies, which are far too many to specifically mention today, thank you, thank you, thank you. Carter said that investigators have worked tirelessly on this case, but emphasized that their work is not yet complete. We are going to continue a very methodical and committed approach to ensure that if any other person had any involvement in these murders in any way, that person or persons will be held accountable. Since the murders of Abby and Libby, 2,086 days ago, the daily investigative team has worked tirelessly and is certainly worthy of mention today. Specifically, Sheriff Lindsenby, the Sheriff of Carroll County, Detectives Tony Liggett, Detective retired Kevin Hammond, former Delphi Chief and now the Prosecutor's Investigator Steve Mullins, State Police First Sergeant Jerry Holman, Detectives Jay Harper, Dave Vito, and Brian Harshman, along with members of the United States Marshal Service, specifically Agent Jeremy Clinton and Agent Bill Colfers. With them today is Dan McLean, the U.S. Marshal, appointed U.S. Marshal. Our state police analyst, our scientist from many different disciplines within our laboratory division, Mrs. Kathy Shank. 
for your incredible dedication to detail and to so many others that I know I've missed. I really believe that Abby and Libby would be proud of you for standing strong, even in the face of immense pressure and perpetual criticism. Some of these individuals have postponed retirement, passed on promotional opportunity, have dedicated personal time away from their families, given up nights, weekends, and holidays, all while in the pursuit of accountability for Abby and Libby. Carroll County Sheriff Toby Lessonby reiterated the work that went into the investigation, and he thanked all those involved. As Sheriff of Carroll County, Indiana, I want to publicly and sincerely thank each individual who played a role in helping us during this five and a half year investigation. Whether it was in an investigative capacity, providing tips, cards or letters of suggestions or encouragement, phone calls, and thousands of other countless ways of communicating. I earnestly thank those who prayed for this moment in time. We now move forward through the Indiana criminal justice system, allowing the system to provide its due diligence and process in providing that justice, which is owed Abby and Libby, their families, in this community. Thank you. Carroll County Prosecutor Nicholas McLellan said that Bond has entered a non-guilty plea and is being held without Bond. There are many dates in a lifetime that you're going to remember. The date your children are born, the date you're married, the date you buy a first house, the date Abby and Libby went missing. One of those dates was last Friday, October 28, 2022. At that time, we had gathered evidence to formulate a PC that we submitted to the court, and the judge did find probable cause for an arrest of Richard Allen. He's been charged with two counts of murder for the murder of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. This investigation is still very ongoing. We're keeping the tip line open, the tip email open. We encourage everybody to continue to call in tips, not only about Richard Allen, but about any other person that you may have. For that reason and for the nature of this case, the probable cause and the charging information has been sealed by the court. I've been very clear to everybody that per the court order, we cannot talk about the evidence that's in the probable cause or the evidence that's in the charging information. That will become evident to you at some point and it will be released, but right now is not that day. Today's about Abby and Libby, focusing on them. Mr. Allen has had his initial hearing. He's entered a preliminary plea of not guilty. The matter has been set for a pretrial on January 13th at 9 a.m. 2023 and a trial date of March 20th, 2023 at 9 a.m. He is presumed innocent. We will have an opportunity and day in court when we can present the evidence that we have against him. But until that day, he is presumed innocent. Again, Allen faces two accounts of murder. His trial is set to begin in May of next year.
Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of Kite Line, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. Kite Line airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until 2018, Louisiana was one of only two states that did not require a unanimous jury vote to convict, a practice that began in the Jim Crow era. In 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court found non-unanimous jury verdicts unconstitutional as well. But this week, the Louisiana Supreme Court has refused to apply the jury ban to any cases before 2018. This move will deny new trials to as many as 1,500 inmates who were convicted by divided juries years ago. Five of the seven justices opposed giving inmates their chance at a fresh trial. The only justice to dissent, New Orleans Piper Griffin, is also the court's only black member. A second justice, James Genovese, offered a partial dissent. The law states that U.S. citizens have a right to a fair trial with an impartial jury of their peers. Genovese argued that the court should grant new trials to black defendants who can prove that a black juror voted against their original conviction. In Friday's ruling, the Louisiana Supreme Court refused to go further than the U.S. Supreme Court required, leaving advocates hoping to appeal to the state's highest court for those convicted by narrow, non-unanimous verdicts. New Orleans-based advocacy group the Promise of Justice Initiative is leading the campaign to free those long-serving inmates. They plan to keep fighting, turning next to the legislature and the governor. PGI's executive director explained, Louisiana is the prison capital of the world. We over-incarcerate black and brown people at enormous rates with excessively long sentences. This rule had the impact its creators intended it to, and we are deeply disappointed that the Supreme Court has chosen not to act to fix this racist law. On Thursday, October 6th, the city of Philadelphia issued an official apology for the Holmesburg Prison medical experiments performed on black inmates for more than two decades. The city's apology came after pressure from community activists and inmates' families and follows many other cities' apologies over their racist policies and practices in the wake of the nation's reckoning with systemic racism after the murder of George Floyd. From the 1950s through the 70s, the city of Philadelphia allowed University of Pennsylvania researcher Dr. Albert Kligman to conduct dermatological, biochemical, and pharmaceutical experiments that intentionally exposed about 300 inmates to viruses, fungi, asbestos, and chemical agents, including dioxin, an ingredient in Agent Orange. The vast majority of Kligman's experiments were performed on black men, many of whom were awaiting trial and trying to save money for bail, and many of whom were illiterate. Many of the former inmates have had lifelong scars and health issues from his experiments. In the year 2000, a group of inmates filed a lawsuit against both the university and Kligman, but the suit was ultimately thrown out due to a statute of limitations policy. Kligman, who would go on to pioneer the acne and wrinkle treatment Retin-A, died in 2010. Last year, the University of Pennsylvania issued a formal apology and took Kligman's name off some honorifics like an annual lecture series and professorship. The university also directed research funds to fellows focused on dermatological issues and people of color. Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney stated, Without excuse, we formally and officially extend a sincere apology to those who were subjected to the inhumane and horrific abuse. 
We are also sorry it took far too long to hear these words. He went on to say that the experiments exploited a vulnerable population and the impact of that medical racism has extended for generations. Up next, Dr. Charlie Nelms wrote an essay on the five reasons he votes in You Should Too. Dr. Nelms will be the guest on Bring It On next Monday, November 7th, the day before Election Day. This comes from that upcoming episode. I vote for five reasons. One, while growing up in the Deep South during America's apartheid era, my parents could not vote without paying a poll tax and passing a racist literacy test reserved exclusively for Blacks. I vote to acknowledge and honor the sacrifices made by my ancestors, civil rights leaders, advocates, and activists, some of whom made the ultimate sacrifice to give me the right to vote. I dare not, I dare not denigrate their memory or sacrifice. Two. Freedom and democracy are on the ballot, and I will not undermine either by sitting out any election. To me, voting is a prerequisite and a privilege of citizenship. Three, not voting is a sign of civic silence, and I want my voice to be heard whether the candidates I vote for win or not. Too often, silence is interpreted as a sign of agreement, and I would not want my silence to be construed with supporting political perspectives that I view as an anathema to democracy, equity, and equality. Fourth, I believe in the collective power of individual votes, and I want to be included in the number of people who pool their votes and their voices to make a difference. And finally, five, I want to practice what I profess with respect to my belief in the importance of civic engagement. Equally important, I believe that the sustainability of American-style democracy is strengthened when we take time to exercise our constitutional right to vote. I had the honor of meeting the late civil rights icon, Representative John Lewis of Georgia, who in 1965 nearly died from a vicious beating at the hands of state troopers and police in a march that came to be known as Bloody Sunday. He once said, quote, the vote is precious. It is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a democratic society, and we must use it, end of quote. For that we have one reason or many for voting, and whether we can articulate them or not, two things are clear. First, there are consequences of not voting. Some are positive and some are negative, but they are seldom, if ever, new. Second, voting is an opportunity to say to current and succeeding generations that we not only stood for something, but that we work to make it happen. Voting is the one thing we can do, no matter 
which side of the political aisle we align with. It is an expression of love for gratitude to those like John Lewis and so many others on whose shoulders we stand. It is what we must do for our democracy, which we have seen can be both fragile and resilient, and which must never, never be taken for granted. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar-powered generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhushki Snyder and Partners with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was written by Cade Young. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Dee Kager. And I'm Lucy Kellison. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org.